coming up on this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And that in preaching, God is a lion that roars. I think it was Spurgeon who said, all you have to do is let the lion out of the cage. Mm -hmm. We need to lift up God, to expose people to God, to his word, his law, his gospel, and we need much more of that kind of preaching throughout this land and not this silly stuff that is passing uh, for, for preaching in so many of our um, mega churches and the shallow preaching that is taking place in so many of our other evangelical churches. We need to preach the word through which, by the Spirit, the lion roars. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host of this particular podcast, and we do have a special edition lined up today, one that is, um, well, it's been necessitated by the fact that we just had an election in this country, a general election for the presidency. And so Dr. Piper has uh, come to me and asked if we could do a discussion in relationship to the election and perhaps some uh, reflection and thought about it. And so we're going to have him in studio, as it were, today to talk about the election and those kinds of matters, and we'll get to that in just a minute. As usual, you can find out all information about Confessing Our Hope at the website, confessingourhope.com. If you want to find out more information about Greenville Seminary, the address, as usual, is GPTS. Edu. We also are starting to gear up for the Spring Theology Conference. That'll be coming up faster than we know. Um, time has a funny way of doing that, I will say. And so it'll be March of 2013 before we know it. And we do have a special, a really exciting conference lined up. The Doctrine of Man is the topic. And we'll have men such as Dr. Joel Beakey, Dr. Joseph Piper, and others. I'm going to leave people out, so I'm not going to bother to try to give the entire list but more information will be forthcoming on our seminary website in the days ahead. So stay tuned for that, and we'll have more information here as we get it. As I indicated, we're going to be talking with Dr. Joseph Piper, the president of Greenville Seminary, today about the election. What kind of reaction should we have to it? I know there are a number of people listening to this that um, they hear that word election. They think about what happened on Tuesday, and it causes a whole bunch of emotional response. I confess I had them, but we're going to talk about that and what kind of response we as Christians should have as we look at the issues and try to talk about them from a biblical perspective. After all, that's what we should be doing anyway, and so we're going to do that today. So, Dr. Pipe, it's great to have you back on. We just had you on the last episode, broadcast number 27, so now you are, have the distinction of being the only guest back-to-back so you're on for broadcast 28, but it's good to have you on, and I know this is something you really wanted to talk about, and uh, so I look forward to this discussion. Thank you, Bill. It's very good to be with you today. Thank you. And, of course, I didn't hit the mute button, so uh, what he did say is thank you, Bill. And so anyway, there it is, a um, little slow on the draw uh, this afternoon. Maybe not enough coffee. But anyway, be that as it may. Well, we just had the election, Dr. Piper, and certainly um, it was hard to know, of course, going into the election— what was going to happen? I, I made the comment a number of months ago that I felt like Obama 
would be reelected um, just based on the climate of the country. So it turns out he was reelected. Um, but there's certainly reasons for that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure we're happy about it, as it were. But there are certainly things I think we can point to that give us some indication as to why it happened and how it happened. And you had um, sketched for me a basic outline of things to talk about. And um, right, out, right out of the bat, you, you mentioned that there, there's been a spiritual and cultural shift in the country. What do you mean by that? Well, it was interesting listening to some of the analysis, even as election was going on, that uh, fewer people identified themselves as churchgoers. And then uh, one of the analysts on Fox News pointed out a strategy that the Obama team had that kind of flew under the radar, and that is they actually went after single women with a pro-abortion, pro-contraceptive message and got a huge amount of that vote. So I think that what we see in this election, I don't know that we could really distinguish it in terms of conservative against liberal as much as a spiritual cultural shift and uh, probably a overarching that would be a postmodern shift. We have a president that... Uh, seems to have no difficulty lying. Mm -hmm. But what is interesting is that the great majority of people seem to have no difficulty with the president's blatant lies. I mean, we know polit well, we're told politicians lie, but I mean, they're so blatant. Fact checks come out the next day, and, you know, it's not true. But people still have a 50% confidence, a, a likability factor with this man. Well, it shows that relativism is on the increase uh, in our culture. So we've got uh, fewer people identified as churchgoers. We've got this uh, pandering to promiscuity among single women that was a very effective strategy. He got Romney got a great majority of married women. Um, and then a startling figure is that 20-plus percent of evangelicals, whatever that means, voted for the president. Now, I think Rick Phillips mentioned on one of his blogs that evangelicals can have different views about uh, economics and the way to fix the economy and stuff like that. But when you have a president that is pro-abortion, uh, pro-homosexual marriage, pro-promiscuity, mm. and 20-plus percent of those that identify themselves as evangelicals vote for him, then we see why I call this a spiritual shift as well. A major problem in the church that I would like to come back to uh, in a bit. We've also got what Herbert Schlossberg referred to as the politics of envy. Yeah, you, you know, you mentioned, you, you, I mentioned off air, it, as I was looking at your list here, um, for those who are wondering, I have a, I have a list, you know, the Rush Limbaugh thing, you know, the paper, okay, I'm not Rush Limbaugh, but anyway, he gave me a piece of paper, you know, kind of an outline to follow, and um, I joked, joked with Dr. Piper before the program, I said, well, that's really nice but you know me i'll probably go off track as typical i usually do but i noticed that you had this politics of envy on here and it, and it caught my eye and uh, immediately and i think i asked you well that ought to be interesting discussion so as you were about to say okay what, what are we talking well, about Well, about uh 27 28 years ago a man named herbert slossberg wrote a book idols for destruction 
voted from an evangelical perspective, looking at the various idols in our culture. One of those, and I'm not sure I have the chapter title correct. I couldn't find my copy of the book, Politics of Envy. But the the, the whole idea is, and what we saw is how Obama pandered to this, and that is to create envy between the, quote, have-nots and the haves. So he isolated the top percentage of the culture. It's not fair that they have so much of the possessions uh, and created envy in those who have less, the same way he has done this with uh, America's resources, America's respect in the world. He understands how to create in people an and envy is a you know envy is more than jealousy. Envy brings with it malice, spite, hatred, and he has this president who's going to bring the country together has actually created a greater divide, not just racially, but in terms of uh, envy. The lower class people really having a great dislike for uh, those that have more than them. Now, you tie that into what I call the idolatry of cradle-to-grave government care. Yep. Another shift that we've seen, and this was Romney got in trouble for saying this, when you got 40-something percent of the economy doesn't pay taxes, you've had the biggest rise in food stamps that we have ever had. We've got almost uh, two full years of unemployment uh, benefits for people. And this is, has broadened the welfare class, which John Perkins uh, actually refers to as our modern-day slavery. Mm-hmm. Now, we have it's the old Caesar bread lines. We've got all these people dependent upon government, and it's no longer Kennedy, ask what, don't ask what the government can do for you, what you can do for government. People are being taught to ask, what do I get from government? And they're going to elect the man. And that's why you'll see the uh, electoral map. The, uh, the states that Obama won, he won in the big cities that has a very large, dependent, government-dependent vote. Or you take Virginia. The only place the economy increased in terms of jobs in the last three years has been government jobs. Yep. These people are dependent upon his presidency for their jobs. Yeah, that's, re- I think, reflected in the, the vote turnout in northern Virginia, pri- prim- uh, prim- primarily in that state. You go, you go to the western part of the state or the middle part of the state. I don't think you saw that as much. But to even strengthen what you're saying more so, I just read just the other day that 109, now listen, people, 109 million Americans, and I don't know how many people are in this country. It's over 300 million, I believe, last census. 109 million are dependent on welfare at some level in this country. That's a third of the country. That's frightening. And poverty now has been defined as you must have a mobile phone. So we got Obama phones, uh, air conditioning, uh, uh, flat screen television, car. I was raised very poor. <laughs> we yeah. didn't have those things. No. Uh, of course, they didn't have mobile phones in those days. But we didn't have air conditioning. We drove a very, very, very old car. Didn't have a television that worked, which was great. But, uh, yeah, there's a great dependence. But when I, I use the word idolatry, so this is not just a political issue. This is people are being trained to look to government in the place of God. Mm-hmm. And they're very content with that idolatry 
uh, as well. Then we've got the whole uh, moral landscape to which I've already alluded with Obama being the most aggressive pro-abortion president we've had, pro-homosexuality, pro-homosexual marriage, pro-promiscuity, and then anti-Christian. And uh, that's, so these are the things that, that I'm talking about in terms of our country. My wife was telling me that Pravda, the state newspaper of Moscow, wrote an editorial that the problem with America was they'd lost God. That's an interesting source. Very interesting coming but from them. De Cokeville pointed out that this country could not, democracy will not survive without a God-centered. I'm not saying that the founding fathers were all Christian. This was a Christian country. But they had a Christian ethic. And the whole fabric of the country was based upon uh, a responsibility to God and responsibility to one's neighbor, responsibility for oneself. It's all gone now. And that's the big shift uh, that I think that a number of these things that contributed to this. Brett Hume said even those that call themselves moderates uh, are no longer really moderates. It was just a nicer name for a liberal who didn't want to be called a liberal. It's interesting you bring up Brett Hume. I watched the election coverage on Tuesday night. Um, I know I'm nuts. Um, I did. I watched it. I me- remember making a comment, in fact, on Facebook that um, – to me, this was more exciting than Game 7 of the World Series. I had my pizza and my chicken wings there. And we I did, was, too. We were at a party. I was excited. I was watching. I, I was hopeful for better. Um, we all know the outcome. But I remember Britt Hume making the comment that at one time, we, he used to believe the country was center-right. And he made that comment in the beginning of the election coverage on Fox News. But by the time that night was over, he, was, he had changed his tune. And, but he said he's not sure anymore if the country is center-right and perhaps it's more center-left than ever in history. And that is striking when you consider some of these social and moral issues that we're talking about, abortion, homosexuality. 20, 25 years ago, we wouldn't have tolerated homosexuality the way we do today. Abortion, maybe more so, maybe more so then, definitely more now. Um, but the promiscuity, it's rampant. It's all over the television, airways, movie theaters, um, and, it's, and it's paraded. It's paraded, and the uh, the church has, for the most part, until homosexuality, been well. They finally got on against abortion, but the promiscuity. When I was pastoring in Houston in the uh, '80s, I had young adults coming back to me and saying they were at this singles church singles activity, and they had uh, Christian singles saying they did not think that sleeping together was a sin. And that's where the church was uh, at at that point. So. We, we have had this shift, and I, just as the loss of the Sabbath, I place on the back the shoulders of the church. I place this on the shoulders of the church. I think uh, one thing that we should assess from this um, election is the failure of megachurch, seeker-friendly strategies. Mm-hmm. Our churches are full, particularly of these younger people, and they're being taught no, obviously no Christian ethic. And so uh, they might have lots of numbers there on Sunday playing their games, but they have not, they don't have the gospel, in my opinion, and thus there's no transformative nature to what they are 
are doing. Before you're, we move on, um, obviously looking at the, the list, um, I do have a question about that. I, I, sir, I know Christians, professing Christians, um, and, and I take them at their word. I know them personally. I believe they are Christians that voted for Obama. And the argument they will use is that we're not voting for a preacher. We're voting for a president. Now, how do you logically yeah. respond to that kind of statement? You know, I was going to go there and, and lost my train of thought. That's why I didn't go there. So I'm glad you got there. Uh, there's a couple of things on that. Uh, that's true, which is exactly what I said about uh, Romney, that, uh, no, I don't like Mormonism. I think it is a awful cult. But we're not voting for a theologian. And our culturally Christian presidents were no more Christian for the most part. Mm -hmm. I think President Bush was a Christian, poorly taught, but a Christian. But the rest of it, a culturally Christian president and a Mormon president are not that different in my mind mm -hmm. theologically. None of them know the true God. Um, but I guess that's what is striking about that statement is the man's inability to tell the truth and his social agenda that should bother any Christian. You know, I was struck again in – I was doing a series down in Brazil and dealing with uh, Revelation 21 and 22. The one sin that God repeatedly says that person shall not enter into heaven was lying. Mm -hmm. A liar has no place in God's kingdom. And – that is um, that's frightening that Christians would, in this particularly here in the South, would admit that they voted for uh, Obama, even if they are, and I would say naive, on economics and taxation. They need to do some reading. Joel Beakey's uh, blog he wrote a number of weeks ago that it would be unconscionable not to vote uh, for Romney. Because of these stands, or the bishop, uh, the African-American bishop, an excellent piece that I thought would have a greater influence. But the other thing that happened, three million Republicans did not vote. And that means our, our vote for Romney. They either voted for an independent, a write-in like Ron Paul, libertarian or something, or they stayed home. And, again, I respect people's consciences, but uh, they basically, for a, a point that Romney wasn't conservative enough, that they, um, they, they would vote for somebody else to stay home, knowing full well. I mean, that would have been the difference. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the politics. The Republicans not getting out their vote, but just the fact that people would um, – would make those types of um, of commitments and not exercise uh, a responsibility that. And then I also don't understand why. I mean, Romney was elected fair and square in the Republican primaries. The majority of Republicans in the country wanted him. I didn't want him, but you know, you can't say it was party politics that got in the uh, thing. He got out and campaigned. He debated and he won people over. But the fact that they stayed home also created um, uh, a problem. Um, and then there's the um, 
cultural shift in terms of the, the racial uh, mix-up or a diversity that we now have in our we've always been a country of immigrants but immigrants have always come here because of the american dream i mean for the most part to work and to contribute whether they were protestants or roman catholics they also had a judeo-christian mm-hmm. ethic now we're getting a class of illegals that come here for what they can get yep and so that's going to add to the weight in fact there was a piece done uh, analyzing the latino vote that get, f- goes into the cradle to grave government care that they're uh, not here in order to become workers to contribute. They're here to get. I'm not saying all of them are, but you get that class of person coming here now because they can get, and that's going to contribute even more to the uh, to the difficulties. It is uh, disheartening um, thinking about what you just said, the cradle-to-grave ideology, which is clearly an issue. You mentioned Romney making the comment that he was up against 47% right out of the gate that he knew he could do nothing to, couldn't touch. I think that was number, 47%. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was 42 But regardless, he understood the, uh, the, 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 the concept that he could not upset people who knew the government was going to take care of them. They're automatically going to vote for that, which would take care of them. It's interesting, however, in, in thinking about those things, is that you know, I'm 46 years of age. My father taught me as a child to work hard, pay your bills, you do what you got to do to make your way in the world. And as you said, that used to be the American dream. Come over here as, a, as an immigrant, you find a job, you, you work hard, and, and you can have that house, you can have the car, the two-car, whatever, the white picket fence, that kind of thing. Nowadays, you don't have to do anything, and they'll hand it to you. You want a free car? Okay. You want a, you want a house? Okay. You want food? Okay. And, I mean, I think about just the food aspect um, <laughs> issue. Um, I mean, we, we, what's Scripture say? If a man will not work, uh, he will not eat, should not eat. And, and, I, and I jokingly say in a serious way that hunger is a strong motivator to working. But, but not in America, not anymore. Um, I, I had a friend tell me the other day that he, he makes sixty thousand dollars in this state, in South Carolina, and uh, just for fun, he decided to apply for food stamps to see if he could get it. They were prepared to give him four hundred dollars a month in food stamps, and he makes sixty thousand dollars a year. Mm. So I think Romney understood this is what he was dealing with. Um, and I think we can see clearly um, this is a, a huge issue. Um, and it's not going to change for the next four years at least. No, but my burden, and this really came together for me that night, I stayed up as well, is that the solution is not uh, political. The solution is spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I was, again, probably more than ever, really struck with the need for the reformation of our churches and for revival mm. because the um, if the church continues to give an uncertain sound then the culture is not going to be challenged with the law and gospel 
of God. And so we need first to reform the church in worship, in observing the ordinary means of grace uh, in the Lord's Day. Uh, and this, of course, comes back on us here and other conservative seminaries to prepare pastors and teachers and to give other pastors and, and elders and deacons the resources to go about this work. Um, but I was really encouraged because the Saturday before the election, I was reading uh, in Hosea, and God is calling on uh, the northern kingdom to repent, even as he's given them over to exile, and he's expressing his love and his compassion for his covenant people. And he says in Hosea 11, uh, that uh, he'll not execute his fierce anger, verse 9. I'll not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. And then he says, they will walk after the Lord, verse 10. Now here's what really, because this is preaching. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar. And his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. And I was struck once again. I was preaching that next morning on preaching, and I was struck once again with uh, this glorious means of grace that is supernatural, powerful, and spiritual, and that in preaching, God is a lion that roars. I think it was Spurgeon who said, all you have to do is let the lion out of the cage. Mm -hmm. We need to lift up God, to expose people to God, to his word, his law, his gospel. And we need much more of that kind of preaching throughout this land and not this silly stuff that is passing uh, for, for preaching in so many of our um, mega churches and the shallow preaching that is taking place in so many of our other evangelical churches. We need to preach the word through which, by the Spirit, the lion roars. Mm. And it seems um, pretty obvious um, when you look at the statistics of the election, those who voted for Obama, that a number of these issues aren't happening. But this, you know, preaching is more than a man getting up and talking for 45 minutes <laughs> i say 45 minutes I, I'm, I'm being nice i mean we're i think in america we're we would be surprised to find out that the majority of sermons are probably about 20 minutes in length no, more like 10 or 15 i think yeah, maybe even maybe even yeah okay maybe even less um, put the, all the liberal churches in there but but why dr piper is preaching so foundational to addressing all of these issues that you talked about as a spiritual and cultural shift. Why does preaching affect the issue of abortion, homosexuality, promiscuity, idolatry? Well, and we're talking the, about matters of the heart, and people must be converted or come to repentance. And Paul says in Romans 10, when he makes the promise from Joel, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, he then asks a series of questions in verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? Some English Bibles translate that of whom, but that's an improper translation. How shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? When the lawfully ordained man of God preaches the word of God, Christ, 
speaks with the same powerful voice by which he created, Mm -hmm. by which he did miracles, by which he taught. That is Christ speaking through his scriptures preached as as he speaks to them read as well. But God has appointed preaching as the primary means of grace, 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word, and it's this very unique word for preach. In fact, a little advertisement in a few weeks, we're going to do a podcast, a conversation of two preachers that will be dealing with this uh, uh, very thing. Just so everybody knows, I'm I'm finding this out now. No, I told you before we started. I'm just kidding. He did tell me. But you are smirking. But I was... Yeah, this isn't video. I forgot. This isn't. This is radio, not television. <laughs> yes, he did indicate that to me, and there'll be details, of course, released. So, um, preaching is literally or virtually dynamite, but we need men that are going to be able to open up the scriptures in a, a very intelligible, understandable way, explain what they mean, and then apply them to the consciences, the emotions, the wills of the hearers, preaching for transformation. Are you advocating then, and and I already know the answer to this question before I ask it, but I'm going to ask it for the sake of those out there listening who may be thinking this. Are you saying that our preachers should turn the pulpit into some sort of um, second level tier of advocating a particular candidate? I'm glad you asked that. In fact, one of the uh, blog pieces I read on the Quiller Report talked about preachers need to get their people registered and stuff like that. No. As I said, the issue is a heart issue, and people's hearts have to be changed, and their minds must be disciplined by the Word of God. And so I would never in the pulpit advocate a candidate or a party, but I will deal with the issues that are biblical and I would encourage people, then you must vote on the basis of the Bible. The farthest we ever went when I pastored in Houston was if, if Christians prepared voter guides, we would make those available with no comment whatsoever, mm-hmm. just so people could be uh, educated in terms of how different candidates would vote. No, I'm talking – I mean, I, I hold very strongly to the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. I don't think the church should be – laboring on the primary level for political or cultural reform. We labor for spiritual reform. But that's one person at a time, and then one family at a time, and one church at a time, and then a, a neighborhood. But a spiritual change that will transform. And it's, it's very, basically very simple. There's one more step that we'll talk about is prayer. But I was just rereading, um, or probably maybe for the first time, Sunday this past Lord's Day, I read the biography of uh, John Owen that's in the front of the collected works. He went to a small parish. He preached. He visited in the homes, which most of our pastors don't do today, to cement that preaching, catechized his people, and that little parish was turned upside down, as was Kidderminster when Baxter went there. Later, he was moved to a, a different location, a much larger parish, because he got pushed out of the other one. And he eventually had 2,000 people coming because of preaching and pastoral care. And then the cultures change because hearts are changed. But we don't preach to change the culture. We preach to see people come to Christ 
and then live lives to God's honor. You've already mentioned what, I mean, just one thing the Bible has to say about work. Not only that you shouldn't eat, but that let him who steals steal no more, that he might have to give to the poor. Uh, we work uh, that we might be productive members of, of the society. We work to care for our own elderly. First uh, Timothy chapter 5. The Bible has all kinds of things to say about a work ethic. The Bible has things to say about um, debasement of currency. Of, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, and if I'm preaching on a text that deals with debasement of currency, then I would apply that. But that's because it becomes, at that point, a biblical theological issue, part of the law of God. Uh, that's not my agenda. My agenda is going to be to see people um, under the lordship mentored by Christ so they think Christianly. Yeah, and I think ultimately what we're, what's being said is that through the faithful exposition of the word of God, lives are changed. What ultimately changes the way people vote changes the way they live, changes all these other issues that we've already talked about that contributed to what I think Dr. Piper and myself would say was not a positive, from our perspective, result in this election. Um, it is curious, as you indicated earlier, that a 20% of evangelicals voted for our current president. Um, well... I have my opinions on that, but uh, you know, professing Christians and being Christians are not always yeah. the same thing. Uh, in fact, they're rarely sometimes the same thing. Um, but of course, all of these things, and 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 we look at these and we think, okay, and it and, and it's it seems like it, it's pretty daunting situation. Um, it looks bleak. It looks rather dark. I know how I felt Tuesday night when I went to bed. Um, I hadn't yet known. I didn't know the official result yet. It was getting late, and I could see this was going to go on much longer than I was prepared to stay up. But as I got up Wednesday morning, I had a small glimmer of hope, as it were, that maybe something dramatic changed. Um, it didn't. It got. It was actually worse than I thought um, when I checked the news. And um, and and I will admit to, to a certain level of um, I don't think depression is the right word, but I was I was saddened. It's how you felt when the Yankees got swept, right? Uh, no, I, I this I felt much worse about <laughs> <hope so>. this um, <laughs> because that's a game, and we'll get to do that again okay. next year. And I'm not worried, you know. It, 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 it no, really, I'm just teasing. I no, no, I know. It, yeah. it, and that you know that that kind of thing doesn't really affect my life all that much. Um, this certainly does, yes. and it affects my children and my children's children for years to come. And I was saddened to see some of the reasons that we've talked about as right. as reasons for why this actually happened and it just tells me where our country's at. Well, there's, there's two more things I want to touch on. I imagine we're getting close to the end of time. Um, what must undergird this approach to preaching and pastoral care is prayer. Mm-hmm. And our churches are fairly prayerless. It's kind of a, a uh, if a church even has a Sunday night service any longer, they get 50% less there. If they have a Wednesday night, they get maybe a fourth or a fifth of the congregation there. And then, so often now, quote, prayer meeting is really another Bible study. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not going to cut the mustard. I was at a church. I preached at a conference at a church in Colorado Springs a week ago this past Sunday. I guess since I don't know the date of this thing. So that would have been the uh, 4th of uh, November. And they have their prayer meeting because they're so spread out after the evening service on Sunday night. 
This congregation, which maybe is 150, had 130 people at prayer meeting. Wow. And they were praying. Now, that needs to be duplicated in every one of our Reformed churches. Our people are, you're out of a church, in uh, Emmanuel Church in Norfolk, that has the same commitment to uh, congregational prayer meeting. Until our churches learn to pray, we should not expect the lion to roar. In that vein, it's an interesting question, I think, and, and we don't have the time to really explore this in any great depth. But I think, simply put, why is corporate prayer – how do I put this question? I really don't know how. Um, what's the difference? I mean, why can't these people – we don't have a corporate prayer specified in a church. We come together and pray together. Why can't people just do that in their living room? And why is that different, and how is it different than coming together corporately? Well, I think there's, there's three types of formal prayer. There's private prayer, there's family prayer, and there's corporate prayer. Mm-hmm. We have the biblical pattern, so of all three. And so when Christ gave the early church the promise uh, of the Holy Spirit, they met in prayer meeting, and that's where they were on the morning of Pentecost when mm-hmm, the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. was poured out. We see that pattern. When Paul gives his exhortations to prayer, uh, for example, Romans fifteen thirty, Ephesians 6, Colossians 4. They're all in the second person plural. He is calling on the congregation to come together. And we have that promise of Christ in the context of prayer where you're gathered as a group in my name. I'll be there present. So we have a pattern that we're ignoring, and, uh, and that is to come together to plead with God uh, for the expansion of the kingdom. The second thing is when we do have a prayer meeting, um, to use the humorous um, witticism, uh, it's more an organ recital than praying for the kingdom. Now, mm-hmm. we should pray for those who are ill, but when we come together as a church to pray, we need to be praying uh, for the advance of the gospel in our church and unto the ends of the earth. And so we join all three together, private praying, where we should be diligently pleading with the Lord, uh, family prayer, and then the church at prayer, which would take place both in the prayer meeting and in the corporate prayers of worship. We need to, for example, and I'm trying to do this every day, we need to be praying that, all right, God has put president back in office for his own sovereign good purposes. Um, and as you pointed out to me before, the broadcast reminded me of all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. This is for the good of the church, for the kingdom. Could be good through persecution. But I've been praying the Nebuchadnezzar model. Mm-hmm. God exalted that man to humble him and convert him, it appears, and he then testifies his allegiance to God. I challenge everybody that hears me and you challenge everybody else, start praying daily for the conversion of President Obama. Mm. that God might be honored and glorified in causing this man to fall at the feet of King Jesus. And so we pray. We pray that God will protect our country. We, uh, if God would spare Sodom and Gomorrah for ten righteous, we deserve judgment, but if he would spare Sodom and Gomorrah for ten righteous men, then we can plead with him to spare our country for the probably hundreds of thousands of truly converted people that live uh, in this nation. 
that God would revive our churches for the sake of his people. And then we need to become much more bold in our witness to Christ and to the word. Winsome Mm -hmm. and um, sweet, but bold in our witness to Christ and the gospel in our contacts. Uh, And then pray over these things that uh, we would see Christ uh, come. So Christ could, if he's so desired, willing, turn this whole thing into a beautiful uh, kingdom advance. Mm. Now, it will be a kingdom advance whether the church goes through uh, a dark time, God's judgment begins in the household of God, or whether we see God do some uh, other remarkable things, and that's we simply submit to him, but we need to be pleading with him to work. Yeah, I'm convinced um, that <clears throat> I mean, we, we certainly don't know why God does what he does in a lot of these. We don't have clear revelation as to why God decided that this president, which I think most people with especially a strong Christian worldview would look at as this is horrible. Um, okay. Um, and, and I don't think anybody here is saying it's not horrible. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that. I, I think this is, um, well, anyway. But the point is this. Um, we may not know the, the, the particulars of God's wisdom in this matter, but we do have clear revelation about certain things. And one of these is praying for those that God has put over us. And I, and I confessed even to the church that um, I, I attend that I struggle with praying for Obama because of his views on so many matters that are so heinous, wicked even, evil. Um, but the reality is if, if, if I'm a representative of the number of Christians out there that also share that same struggle, then perhaps it's because we are not praying hard enough for these things, and that's why we're seeing them happen. Now, we don't have it. We don't have the righteousness in our leaders because we're not asking for the righteousness in our leaders. Um, I think we got a little complacent during the Reagan administration, uh, maybe a little bit more so when Bush was president. Uh, we got upset when Clinton was. We got really upset when Obama is, but he's reelected. Um, I don't think the church has yet realized the reality that prayer actually does something. It does. Um, I can't explain all the ins and outs of it. But the church, as you said, Dr. Piper, needs to get more serious about this, and, and, and corporately, as well as individually, but certainly corporately, about these matters, um, if we're going to see any real change. Because at the end of the day, and I know you'd agree with this, that Romney wasn't the solution to the moral ill of this country. And Obama certainly not the, is not the solution to the moral ill of this country. There's only one man that I know that is the solution to the moral ills of this country. And he's come, lived, died, and was resurrected, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And until the gospel penetrates the hearts of these people, we won't see real change. And if we don't pray for it, we won't see it. And if we don't believe that, then what are we talking about? at the end of the day. And so the church must take this seriously. If Paul can counsel Timothy to pray for those in leadership over, um, over the people in his day, consider the leadership of that day, who they were. We would scream for an Obama, considering what they were dealing with. So, so much more us as a church 
um, need to do that. Any final thoughts? I went into a little bit of a monologue there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a good program. I just pray. You're right. Pray, witness, preach. Yep. Apply the word of God. It's not a private. Being a Christian is not a private enterprise. Um, it's not you and your Bible in your kitchen by yourself and nobody else knows about it. And you sort of leave it there when you leave your house. Um, sadly, it seems that some Christians took it into the voting booths. Be that as it may, they have to live with their own conscience. Didn't on that. take it into the voting booths. Or didn't. Correct. Thank you. They have to live with that in their own conscience. I, I well, they have to live with that. Um, but the reality is this. Um, God was watching. Um, he knew what people were going to do. He knew how they were going to do it, why. Um, and Well, God foreordained it. Yes. And, and as I said off air, um, for reasons we can't explain, God always working for the good of his people, whatever that means. That may not mean good like prosper, and, and we can. it could be persecution, as was already indicated. But the reality is that of the two choices, God believed, God knew that Obama was the better of the two choices. Now, that may be a tough pill for people to swallow. I wouldn't put it that way, Bill. How would you put it? Uh, I would put it that God gave us Obama as judgment and as a wake-up call. So, But ultimately, that would lead to God our good. Because God does something, doesn't mean he's a better of the choices. It was God's foreordained choice. Well, that's true. I understand what you mean. What I, and I think I mean but the same thing. We don't understand what you mean. No, I think I mean what you mean. What you just said. I think the reality is, is that um, we we are going to be better for it yeah. than if Romney had won. And how that plays itself out in in time, I have no idea. Nobody does. Uh, we don't have little crystal balls here. We can look and see how that's going to happen. We have the promises of God that He's working actively for His people. If that means more persecution, so as people get more attentive to His word and His ways, so be it. If it means the conversion of the president, which would be incredibly glorious, I mean, beyond words, so be it. But it's he's working actively for us. We also have to remember as conservatives that we have many Reformed uh, friends, say, in Britain that have been living under this mm -hmm. uh, Western European socialism for mm -hmm. decades. Mm -hmm. And um, the church suffers there not from government but simply from the weakness of of the west but they live and they minister and they rear their children and we've been very blessed with a constitutional government and uh, a, a non-socialistic system and and that might change but that's not going to change who we are as christians are are who the, what the church is yeah, when, at the end of the day, we're pilgrims. Right. And um, we have a different citizenship, and, and we just need to keep that in mind, but still be faithful to the things that Dr. Pipe has even mentioned, you know, the simple things. And preach the Word of God faithfully. Pray as a people. Come together. Pray corporately. Um, you know, the churches need to, as Dr. Piper said, you need to start having prayer meetings again. This whole idea that we're too busy and people are got 8,000. We're not any busier today than they were 50 years ago. And we've got all the conveniences, and, supposedly. And we have all the conveniences. And so it's absurd argument to say that. And then we need to be more bold. 
in our approach to sharing the gospel with whenever Christ brings people along and our friends and our circles and our neighbors um, and do it in a winsome way, a way that attracts people to the, to the gospel itself. Um, and we, uh, you know, we do uh, church consulting. Um, and so if church invites hearing this, you'd like us to help you set up a prayer meeting, a, a parish model program of ministry. We work with preachers on their preaching. We've got a lot of resources mm-hmm. uh, that we'd be glad to make ourselves available to any of our listeners uh, in terms of, of promoting these things as well. Absolutely. Well, with that said, I think it's a good place to end. I would do want to thank Dr. Piper. He's... Um, took time out i know he was excited about doing this program but very busy and um was able to pop into my office here for an hour or so and and do this um think about what has been said um if you're a member of a church and this has got you spun up and you get excited but go talk to your elders and and you know share your burden with them and talk to them and share this program with them maybe they'll get excited um i mean until god's people get excited do these things um I think we're going to, four years from now, we're going to be having the same interview with the same comments and the same pleas to the church. And maybe we should have done this before the election. But be that as it may, it, this is how it happened. And uh, so consider these things for your own growth and edification and walk with Christ. Um, and, um, but pray. Pray for your country. Be obedient and pray, but pray from the heart. And uh, let's see what God will do. Um, we have a whole Bible that shows us that God acts on the prayers of his people. Um, so let's do that um, as, a, as his people as we go forward. Dr. Pepper, thank you for being on. I know you have to run, get class, um, but I do appreciate thank your time you, Bill. this afternoon. It's good to be here. You've been listening to an interview, a discussion, a roundtable, basically conversation about the, the events of the last week or so, uh, some of the fallout, as it were, as it relates to the election uh, here in the United States, if you're listening to this program and you live somewhere else, this may seem a little disjointed to you, but certainly if you watch the news, you know what's going on over here, probably as much as we do. And so um, it, it would apply as much to you living in Europe or other countries as it applies to us here in America. You need to pray for your leaders as well and watch God work. So we do thank you for listening to this special edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.